0: To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. One of my favorite parts of the retreat this year has been the interviews with all of you. Before the interview, you sit on a cushion, facing a wall. And that tradition comes from Bodhidharma, who sat in his cave in China. And he was so determined to sit all day and all night, facing the wall with his eyes open, that when he started to fall asleep one night he reached up for his eyelids and ripped them off and then he put them beside him and it said that that's where the first green tea bush grew so next time you drink some green tea (laughs) next time you face a wall or next time you feel like you don't have enough courage to keep going, just think about Bodhidharma. So that's what you're doing facing the wall, emptying out. And then you come into a room lit only by a candle with some incense so the soft palate is tall and we sit just a few inches from each other face to face mind to mind (coughs) aware of the candle the wind outside and the authority in the room is the silence is the rest of the sangha sitting in the next room the authority in the room is the fact that we don't know what's going to happen How are you going to let yourself be seen? Maybe you're not. Just in the past two days in that room, there has been a lot of crying laughing and even we sung a song everything but dancing pretty much to be able to sit face to face with each other without having any expectations hiding or doubting yourself, or trying to make a good impression, those are all just ghost worlds. And the only word I have to describe all of our meetings is love. Sometimes we can really show up and sometimes we can't really show up. Me too. When my life feels really hard, I chant the Heart Sutra. When I go into the forest in the snow I chant the Heart Sutra When I'm sitting on the back of an airplane for a zillion hours I chant the Heart Sutra When I go visit my parents and I drive to their house On the way I chant the Heart Sutra If I'm holding someone's hand who's in a coma. Sitting with someone if they're dying. Or sometimes before I go to bed, I go see my son in his room. Watch him sleep. Someone told me that until your kid turns 14 whenever you watch them sleep they still look like a baby. Then they turn 14 and they might not be sleeping alone. So you stop going into their room. So for me, the Heart Sutra is mixed up with death and life and forgiveness, caring, boredom. And I love the Heart Sutra like I love my son. And probably I can love my son like I love him because of the Heart Sutra. The Heart Sutra, I, I, I like learning it in Sanskrit, even though it's actually originally in Chinese, because the Heart Sutra has no verbs. It only has nouns and modifiers. So actually, when you read it from the original, it, it actually doesn't make any sense. And, and I really love that. Well, actually, if you if you read it and try and translate it yourself from the Sanskrit, it makes completely... It does, it's nonsense, actually. So I've always tried to find what's the verb in the Heart Sutra. There has to be a hidden verb. And then I've realized, actually, just while we were here, the verb is just together, that we're chanting it together. The message of the Heart Sutra... Is togetherness. It's the Heart Sutra's negation. No, 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 no. You think there's a path? No. You think you have wisdom? No. You think you have a mind, an ear, a nose, a tongue, a body? No. Whatever you think, no. In Sanskrit, it's neti, ne. Neti 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 means no no no. I always think it sounds like naughty naughty naughty. No no no. Practicing the Heart Sutra is an invocation to realize the togetherness of everything. We're not one person sitting here. Even when you sit by yourself, you're not one person sitting. Like the inhale and exhale. Complementary opposites. The togetherness of the inhale and the exhale, they go together. Life and death, they go together. You can't live if you're scared to die. You can't forgive if you're scared to die. If you're scared to let go, you can't forgive. Letting go of who we think we are. It's interesting, in Buddhism, the dichotomy that the Buddha explored was not between life and death like Freud explored or between being and non-being like the existentialists explored, but between wisdom and ignorance. The word for ignorance is avidya, which literally means not seeing. No video. Not seeing. And over the past couple of days I've just been calling that the difference between love and suffering. And hopefully we come out with a better ratio than we came into the retreat with. And this togetherness, this togetherness of being and non being, inhaling and exhaling, is called maha, which is why we call the chant maha prajna paramita heart sutra. In the old schools of Buddhism, and I know some of you have studied Theravada Buddhism, that the, the, the main teaching in the Dharma is right view. And right view usually means seeing impermanence. Seeing everything is impermanent. Even though intellectually we know that things are impermanent, we tend to live in a world that we think is full of permanent things. Beginning with ourselves. I am this way and we think this is permanent. So one of the core teachings of the Buddha is that this this thingness, this, this sense that you think you are permanent, that your relationships are linear, that your career is linear, that your backbending practice is going somewhere. This is all not living with impermanence. And it's always a shock, I think, because no matter how much we think we know, we don't know how impermanent our lives are. In Mahayana Buddhism, which is what I've been um, channeling through the teachings this week rather than looking at impermanence we look at emptiness that because things are changing there is no such thing as a thing things are empty of thingness all of our categories, all of our conceptions of reality, all our versions of our past, all our versions of other people, they're empty. So emptiness, if you read between the lines, goes hand in hand with compassion. I thought this would be a good t-shirt Emptiness equals compassion. Please don't get that tattooed. Every time I come up with an idea, someone tattoos it. (laughs) And in the Heart Sutra, they call compassion wisdom beyond wisdom. This means not having an idea of wisdom or morality. Real knowing is much deeper than intentions. I have to be honest, I don't know so much about what intentions are. I don't always understand that term. Intentions, intentions. In our practice, when we're one with our situation, presence takes over. Intentions come and go. If you really look closely at intentions, you see every intention that you have has a counter-intention. You probably have a lot more counter-intentions than intentions, and they're unconscious. So in this view, with emptiness in the foreground, an intention is replaced with presence. We don't move into the world with intention. We move into the world with presence. And it replaces trying to do good. We just become one with our situation. For example, if you practice giving and you get good at it, you'll say to yourself, look, I'm getting good at giving. And that very thought would then limit your giving. Look, I'm getting good at meditating. I'm getting good at compassion. Real giving would be giving without any thought of giving. It would be a reflex of your living. A natural response. So this is the message of the Heart Sutra. When you define who you think you are, you limit who you are. If you go to the hospital and you try to be a really good son, you limit what you can give. If you go home from here and you walk in the door and you try and be a perfect person for your family, for your cat, for your co-workers, then you limit what you can be. Instead, we need to just respond to the ancient source. It's right here, in every moment. So, when we emphasize emptiness, we're emphasizing connection. As soon as you try and grab something, you're grabbing everything. And emptiness in action is love. Really being connected. to what's actually going on, is love. Absence of fear. Absence of self-centeredness. Of greed. Competitiveness. So what I'm interested in is how you live these teachings. My, my method of teaching some of you know is really the anti philosophy school how to take any teaching and turn it into a practice where you can become that teaching where you can become forgiveness realizing emptiness As you realize emptiness, you still practice meditation, but what's different is the attitude you have about it. You can see that you'd have a more easygoing and light hearted spirit if you emphasized connection. It's a much better attitude than trying to get somewhere. just to see. There's a wonderful poet named Soseki. And um, actually, I've, I'm just discovering his poems and they're impossible to find. When he describes his awakening, he looks back at his life, and the line he uses is this: "The mind moves like quicksilver down so many wrong-headed views." each one more wrong than the next the mind moves like quicksilver down so many wrong-headed views each one more wrong than the next love this this image of quicksilver the mind as a liquid metal mercury so beautiful so quick shining brilliant can can move in any direction slipping down wrong-headed views sometimes we're in the God realm sometimes we're in the human realm sometimes in the realm of delusion so this is why we practice forgiveness you know Growing up Jewish, I was really glad nobody talked about atonement when I first got to the Buddhist practices, the yogic practices. We think of atonement as a kind of Christian or Jewish, Jewish <coughs> obsession. We like Buddhism because it doesn't have all that. But the Dharma is sneaky, and it does have all that. Because awakening is not an escape into irresponsibility. Liberation always depends on a clarity of heart. Precepts, confession, meeting after meeting, forgiveness, remorse. In the morning we chant, All my karma. From beginningless time. So in the morning, we set up the practice after chanting the Heart Sutra with this verse of atonement that we chant three times All my evil karma, and how it's beginningless, has no beginning. It's not your parents' fault. My friend Christopher Chapel used to always say, the reason why the Indians invented past lives was just to get your parents off the hook. <laughs> Beginningless karma. And then, all day we breathe, all day we come back to the breath, And at the end of the day, we're forgiven. And it was the breath that forgave you. Because the breath leads you to Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. What we call the triple treasures. we forgive each other just being in the room together just supporting each other quietly you can try and practice meditation for some years without all this form without chanting and without all the bowing but eventually with honest observation in your meditation just by casting this soft light on your heart then you start to develop some faith when you really say and think something hurtful your heart gets twisted up when you really think something hurtful about yourself or someone else your heart gets twisted And over time being free gets harder and distortion increases. And you get stubborn. And so we need the form to hold us in just the right way. So that the form is like a net and it catches our habits. The orioki catches our habits. The chants in the morning especially They help wake us up to where we're stubborn in our heart. One of my own realizations on the retreat this week was that being unforgiving is actually a built-in feature of the self. By definition, the self is unforgiving. The Buddha noticed this, I think. And you noticed this, I think. Every time you move to protection, every time you move into a new category, every time you hold back, it always comes out suffering in the end and lonely. If you look deeply at the imperfection in your life, then you really wake up to perfection. And you can't finally forgive yourself because the self has no beginning and no end. So maybe now you have this new category where, oh, I'm going to actually forgive myself. But by definition, the self is always imperfect, always leaving something out. So really forgiving yourself means forgiving everything. And with an attitude of forgiveness, then everything is medicine. So... This is the last hour and a half of the year. This seems like a pretty good time to relax. feel one another in the room. And so what I'd like to do is a short practice for forgiveness together. And then we'll acknowledge all the people who we've known this year who've died, and then all the people we know right now who are ill. You know, we're so lucky we can be here, that we have the health, the safety, a culture where men and women can practice together. that we have the leisure time to be here, the support from our family. There are so many people who would benefit so much from being here who can't be here. Maybe they're really ill, they don't have time, or, or they just don't even know it. Maybe you've been in that place in your life. I've been in that place.